Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series through the penitential psalms. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. With me at Psalm 143, uh, it's Pew Bible, page 523. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me, in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul, he has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Almighty, gracious Father, since your whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your word, grant that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, so that we might rightly discern your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness. To your praise and honor, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. There's an old saying that I would imagine you're all familiar with. It goes something like this. If you go looking for trouble, you're sure to find it. The proverb says something similar. Uh, Evil comes to him who searches for it. But what if you weren't searching for it? Sometimes, even if you aren't looking for it, Trouble finds you. I think of Job, whose trouble began not when he went looking for it, but when God said those famous words to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? Or I think of David, who was chosen by God. Scripture says he was a man after God's own heart. He was anointed king. And he did not go looking for trouble following his anointing. Followed the Lord faithfully, but trouble 
trouble surely found him. I think of the song that the witches sing in Macbeth. Remember that? Stirring the brew. Double, double, toil and trouble. And I think of that and I think, yep, no matter where you are, trouble is always a brewing. That trouble comes is certain. But why it comes and, and what variety it comes, well, that's a mystery, isn't it? Neither you nor I know why certain trouble finds others and not ourselves, and why certain trouble finds us and not others. And no one can explain it. No one knows, but for God. God knows. And God says in Psalm 50, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Now, how God delivers us, and I might add, when God delivers us, is up to Him, isn't it? But we can be sure of this. Scripture is quite clear. That God is working all things for our good and His glory, even in the day of trouble. To our glorious God, David directs his pleas for mercy, knowing that while man may persecute us, it is God who upholds, directs, disposes, governs all creatures, all actions, all things, from the greatest to the least, by His most wise and holy providence. Ultimately, Mercy comes not from man, but God, whose steadfast love, Scripture says it never ceases, whose mercies never end, but what? They're new, new every morning, great indeed is His faithfulness, and we might add to that, as the psalmist does, and is His justice, to which David appeals. David appeals not to his own self-righteousness because he knows that he is a sinner by nature and by his thoughts, by his words, and by his deeds. And we know, well, we know what David knows, don't we? As David puts it here, no one living is righteous before him, before God. Or as Paul quotes from the Old Testament in Romans chapter 3, no one's righteous, if you were wondering, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. David's appeal to the Lord then is not self-justifying. I've done this for you, Lord, therefore you do this for me. No, it's it's penitent, isn't it? No one is righteous. But Scripture says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. Note the same two words that David uses here. The Apostle John says, God is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And because our forgiveness 
And because our cleansing are based on God's faithfulness and God's justice, not our own faithfulness and justice, then we can be sure of it. That's good news in itself. We, call, we often refer to this as peace with God through Christ Jesus. But peace with God does not guarantee peace with man. I think about it this way. Paul says, so far as it depends upon you, we are to live peaceably with all people. Right? But that doesn't mean that all people desire to live peaceably with us. This is the case with David, whose plea for mercy to God is to receive mercy from the taunts, from the terrors of his enemy. And so he flees. David flees. Not into the fray, but where? He flees to the Lord with his plea. It is the Lord who is his refuge. It is the Lord who is his, as we sang earlier, his mighty fortress, his bulwark, never failing. Now, you and I, in reading this psalm and in study of it, we do not know who David's enemy is. It's not revealed to us. We don't know what his demise has come from, but we do know who David's ultimate enemy is because he's also our enemy, right? Scripture refers to him as our adversary. Peter says that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And that adversary, that enemy, in his prowling, He has hunted David down. He has crushed him to the ground. He is leaving him feeling like he is dwelling in darkness as if the living dead. David feels like his life is lifeless. He feels as if the Lord has abandoned him. Of course, the Lord has not abandoned him. But that's what our enemy would have us believe. In fact, that's what our enemy wants us to believe. Jesus said this, The devil does not stand in truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so, we should expect that He will attack us in such a way that would even seek to deceive us, to get us to believe lies. You know, lies like, well, you know, you've done it this time, God's finally abandoned you. That's a lie! But the liar would have us to believe even the unbelievable. So deceptive are the lies of our enemy that you and I... And even the saints of old can begin to wonder, well, what can I believe? Is is there any truth? I mean, how do I know between what is false and what is true? Isaiah certainly felt this way. He believed that he lived in a day characterized by, quote, a lack of truth. And Jeremiah was like him, except Jeremiah was even more pessimistic. I know, not a shocker to us, right? But Jeremiah even thought that truth had perished from the land. That it was gone. There was no more truth left. And I would imagine that you and I can from time to time 
think like Isaiah and think like Jeremiah. Like, well, that's it. The last grain of truth is gone. (laughs) Wrong. And here's why that is wrong. Because while truth may be in short supply among Adam's progeny, truth has not perished and it never will. Because our Lord Jesus Christ is the embodiment of truth. And He never ends. He is God. And He has given us His Word. And guess what Scripture says about His Word? It's eternal. So Christ is truth forever. He has given His Word to us. It is eternal. And in this we know what truth is. And though you and I may grow weary... And I do, and I know you do too. And and though we may from time to time just feel worn down by the seemingly incessant attacks of our enemy, how we feel does not define truth. (laughs) Thank God truth is not determined by how I feel. Imagine the whims and ways that truth might find if it was based on how I feel on any given morning. No. If your life is governed by how you feel, then you're going to fall to the preposterous. You're going to fall to the truly unbelievable. Don't fall prey to how you feel. Because the world and the flesh and the devil will prey upon it. Like David, our enemy pursues us, seeks to crush us, would lead us into darkness, and he'd destroy our very soul if he could. As Martin Luther put it, for still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Yet despite his craft and power, you and I are not helpless victims of Satan. We are heaven-bound victors in Christ. And while on earth is not his equal, (laughs) we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, standing firm in Christ's armor, wielding the sword of his spirit, which is the word of God. And though this world with devil's fields should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail Him. And Luther was right. Luther was right. Because it is in this spiritual sword 
The living and active word of God. That is the weapon of Christ's appointment. To be wielded in defense against the onslaught of the enemy. But to wield the word, we've got to know it. To wield the word, we've got to go to it. As David says, to remember and to meditate on what God has done. To ponder the revelation of his inscripturated handiwork. David confesses, I remember the days of old, which is not a point of nostalgia. He's not like saying, you know, remember the good old days? You know, I was younger, I was fitter, I was better looking, had more hair, no gray. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look back to the testimony that God has given. Look back to the days of old, David says. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. In an age obsessed with progress... And elevation of the new over the old, we are not only prone to forget, as we sang earlier, but in many ways we're encouraged to forget. But God's timeless word counters this chronological snobbery with the history of God's sovereign purpose and provision for His people. If you read the Bible cover to cover, Genesis to Malachi, Matthew to Revelation. If you read the Bible cover to cover, here's what you may be surprised at. Scripture's full of history. Lots and lots of history. And in it, God repeatedly says a word. Remember. Remember. Remember what He has done for His people. Folks, we forget our redemptive historical past at our peril. In an age of arrogant ignorance, we do not only not know our history, but we don't even want to learn it. We would rather challenge and argue than listen and learn. And not realizing that our unwillingness to learn from our ancestors doesn't change history. Just because we walk around and go, no, 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 I don't want to hear that stuff about the past. That doesn't change history, does it? But it does change us. And not for the better. It is as if we value the presence of our opinion over the reflection of the past. What extraordinary arrogance. And the church... The church is not immune to this malady, but we have seemingly embraced it. I am amazed how little we know of church history and our unwillingness to learn from it, as if we have progressed to the point of superiority, when in reality we have regressed to the point of stupidity. But this is especially important of our understanding of redemptive historical history. As our biblical illiteracy escalates, so does our ignorance of the days of old, as David puts it. What God has done. His historical handiwork. And it's a repetitive problem. It's not new to you. It's not new to me. It's not new to our culture. It's not new to the modern church. In fact, 
One of the saddest verses in the Bible, and I don't mean that with hyperbole, is in Psalm 106, when the psalmist looks back at his ancestors and he says these sad words, Our fathers did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love. Those are sad, sad words. May it not be said of us. And so, you and I, we go to God's Word, but we don't go like consumers in the marketplace. We go as children of our Father. Because we want to know Him. We want to know His ways. We want to know His wills. And it is our delight. It's not a burden to meditate upon the Word. We go to it with delight to remember, to meditate, to ponder upon all that God has done. Why? Because we desire to know Him. Using our minds to read, to meditate, to study upon God's Word. Knowledge is indispensable to the Christian life and service, John Stott wrote. If we do not use the mind which God has given us, we condemn ourselves to spiritual superficiality. And so, for us, the Bible is not like a once and done read, right? Oh, the Bible, I read that once upon a time. It's a pretty good read. No Christian should ever say that, right? No, we go to the Bible to repeatedly immerse ourselves in the revealed Word of God. This is one of the reasons that personally I love to start my day in the Word. Like David, I love to hear in the morning of the Lord's steadfast love. And, and it's a spiritual discipline, I tell you, that, has, that blesses my day, but it's blessed my life. I have never Once again, not without hyperbole, I have never regretted time in the mornings that I've spent in God's Word. I've never regretted. I've never looked back and said, well, that was a waste of time. Never have I said that. But it's not just the spiritual discipline of spending time in God's Word, but it's also having a teachable heart. We can go to God's Word, but we can go like this instead of like this. David says, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. To know God's will, we have to go to God's word. But we must also be willing to accept it. Think about it this way, a verse that I would imagine all of us are familiar with. Scripture says, all scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But what? But we have to be willing to be taught, reproved, corrected, and trained in righteousness. If we go to God's word without an unwilling heart, we go to God's word in vain. This God does in us through His Word and by His Spirit. Because Scripture says, as I said before, that the Word is the sword of the Spirit. Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And as God teaches us by His Spirit... 
through His Word, we find that even amidst an evil people, even in a crooked land, He leads us to level ground. Or as that expression in this psalm could be translated, it leads us to a land of uprightness. In other words, when we are immersed in God's Word and we are open to be taught by it, even if all around us seems like chaos and the land is tumultuous and I can't believe what's happening, God's Word does this. It puts us on stable ground. Why? Because God's Word is true and God's Word is eternal. That can't be said of anything else in our culture. But this doesn't mean that we don't feel like we're in the middle of a desert. There are times in my life, there are times in your life, you may be there today, in which life just has made you parched, would say here in Arkansas. Like dry ground in desperate need of rain. And it's through God's Word that He provides for us. Isaiah says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so we go to God's word desperate, needy, thirsty, as if life depends upon it. Because what? Because it does. It does depend upon it. It is the rule of faith and life, as we say in our confession. And we drink deeply from the well of God's infallible provision to quench our soul's thirst. And nothing quenches it like the Word of God. And as the Lord has revealed Himself and His will in His Word, then we know His character. We know that He keeps His covenant. Knowing that He who began a good work in you, well, what? Scripture says He'll bring it to completion at the day of our Lord Jesus. We have confidence that in Christ we will persevere to the end. Even though trouble comes, even though trouble goes, even if we're in the day of trouble and it feels like it's never ending, God says, I've not abandoned you. I am there and I will preserve you that you will persevere unto the end. But in the day of trouble, it's easy to lose sight of this truth, isn't it? It's real easy for John to stand up in the pulpit and to preach it, right? But when it hits you square in the face, it's harder, isn't it? That's why we've got to consistently be in God's Word. But just as our feelings do not dictate truth, so God does not hide from us. He never hides from us, but preserves us, not for our merits, but His alone. For in His steadfast love for us, He has not only crushed our ancient foe, but redeemed us as His own. Come what may today, you and I can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? 
And you and I can boldly sing that word above all earthly powers. No thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we do thank you for the blessing of your word as we go to it and we look back to the days of old and as we consider what you have done, you know what we do not. And you care for us even when we don't feel like it. And you provide for us in ways that we cannot even fathom. We ask by your grace that you would continue to sustain us, preserve us, that we might persevere to the end, and that you, by your Holy Spirit, would teach us, encourage us, enable us to consistently go to your word, that our souls may drink deeply from the well of your provision. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.